from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the Center for European Reform podcast. I'm Leonard Schütte, a former Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow at the CER and now a PhD researcher at the University of Maastricht. With me on this podcast today are Dr. Ji Yu, a senior fellow on China at Chatham House, Sophia Besch, a senior fellow at the CER, and Ian Bond, director of foreign policy at the CER. The CER has recently published a policy brief on the triangular relationship between Europe, the US and China, and we are here today to discuss it. We will first address the big picture of the unfolding rivalry between the US and China before discussing what Europe can do about the military confrontation, um, how Europe should engage with the US and China on global issues and economic competition, and the impact the US election may well have on the relationship. The point of departure of our brief is that the EU can no longer conduct relations with either the US or China in isolation of their bilateral relationship. In both Beijing and Washington, relations with the EU are increasingly seen through the prism of the incipient great power rivalry. And perhaps the most fundamental question then is whether war between the US and China is inevitable. It seems as though many, at least in the Washington DC-based foreign policy community, think so. And the COVID pandemic has reinforced this perception as both powers have turned more nationalistic and confrontational toward each other. The Harvard professor Graham Allison reflects and in some ways drives this perception. Uh, he has come up with the metaphor of the Thucydides trap to capture precisely the dangers of war arising from power transitions. Uh, he refers to the famous sentence in Thucydides' Peloponnesian War that it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. Hence, the Thucydides trap implies that as power shifts from the West to China, China will seek to revise the existing order, which the US designed to its advantage. And naturally, the US will defend the status quo and try to contain China, which risks over war. At the heart then of the logic of the Thucydides trap is that there is a mutual perception of both states, that they are in a power struggle, rather than they can uh, peacefully coexist. And if that perception takes hold in, in Washington and, and Beijing, the trap risks becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy because any move, even if it's defensively oriented, risks uh, being seen as a step towards conflict. And many think that this is precisely the attitude currently in Washington and Beijing. In our policy brief, we don't necessarily disagree with the notion that the rise of China poses significant dangers to peace, But we do take issue with the view that war is inevitable, and that is for three reasons. First, Thucydides himself mentioned other factors, except the shifting balance of power that led to war, including alliance entanglements and poor decision-making. While President Trump seems to be of the reckless kind, other US presidents and the Chinese leadership are unlikely to risk a great power war. Second, today's rivalry between the US and China looks very different from the one between Athens and Sparta 2,500 years ago. Both have nuclear second strike ability, which would deter full-out war and extensive economic interdependence that Ian will address later on as well, uh, means that the cost of war would be exponentially high. 
uh, despite recent efforts by the US to, to decouple from China. And third, Allison suggests that the conflict is essentially bilateral. But we, we argue in the brief that we are not in a Cold War between two unified camps, but in a multipolar world where several other actors can have a significant influence over the US-China relationship. On the one hand, alliance entanglements in the Indo-Pacific, so uh, Japan and Taiwan for the US or North Korea for China, risk drawing the US or China into war. On the other hand, powerful actors such as India, Russia, but above all the EU plus the UK, have absolutely no interest in a catastrophic great power war. And so we suggest that despite the real and acute dangers, war between the US and China is not inevitable. And we think that Europe has a, has a critical role to play in shaping that relationship. So, Sophia, you are, among other things, the CER's defense expert. Um, how, how do you see the military side of the US-China rivalry? And what can Europe do about it? Thanks, Leonard. Um, so what I want to talk about really is the need for Europeans to take China more seriously as a security risk. Uh, in the brief, we discussed this. We discussed the fact that China is building up its own military capacity, um, increasing its defense spending, ambitiously modernizing its armed forces, and that the U.S. has been reorienting its own military posture in response to this for years. Um, the question is, where does this leave Europe, which is not predominantly a military power and which does not have the U.S. capacity to project power globally? Um, we argue that Europe, nevertheless, cannot afford to ignore China's growing military and defense influence and that it needs to protect its own interests, which means first identifying how and where Europe is affected. Um, I'm going to run very briefly through three areas, and listeners are very welcome to uh, read the policy brief for details. But uh, first, there's China's military influence in Europe's direct neighborhood. For example, in the MENA region in the Middle East, North Africa, where China is a relatively new actor, where there are opportunities for cooperation, certainly, but clearly also risks from, for example, China's export of weapon systems or surveillance technology. Uh, there's the Arctic, where China has declared itself a near-Arctic power and where Europe might have come to terms with uh, militarization of the region by Russia, but in the future potentially also by China, which is investing in infrastructure and real estate here. And there's the Mediterranean, which is a crucial area of operation, especially for NATO, where China's economic investment in strategic infrastructure has clear security implications. Take, for example, the part of Piraeus where China has heavily invested and which might now not be available um, for European forces or US forces if they had to be moved through there in a crisis. Um, China has also uh, clearly recognized the Western Balkans as a corridor that offers access to Mediterranean ports and has invested heavily in, for example, Serbia, which now supports China's territorial claims in the South China Sea and has also bought Chinese drones. Then there's the question of how Europe should deal with China's actions in the, in the Pacific, where um, China has expanded its maritime presence in the South and East China Seas, stepped up pressure on Taiwan, where the U.S. is actively challenging China's claims, but European military involvement, with the exception of uh, some 
more symbolic operations by France and the UK, freedom of navigation operations there has been quite limited, um, where countries in Europe have neither the capability nor, I would argue, the political will really to deploy there, where there is a clear sense, for example, in Central and Eastern European countries, that this could be a distraction from the threat of Russia um, for NATO. But where uh, there are European economic interests here to protect free and safe shipping and where there is also a global interest for the EU to defend the rules-based order, which uh, is undermined uh, in by China in the Indo-Pacific because it does include respect for international law, the law of the sea. And then um, the final security challenge that I want to just briefly mention is Chinese investment in technologies with military and security applications. Um, technological innovation, technological superiority continues to be one of the most important aspects of modern military competition for developed economies, really. And that's true for conventional weapons, but also for dual use and emerging technologies that could potentially have military applications in the future. Um, and in the brief, we talk about China's strategy of military civil fusion, um, which aims to basically bring the innovative approach of the civilian industrial sector into defense production. We talk about how the U.S. is dealing with this challenge through export controls, investment screening, um, but also through investing itself in technological innovation. And we warn that European governments, because they have cut defense um, research and development budgets for decades, and because they have cut almost in half the European Defence Fund, which was supposed to fill some of these gaps, and because they do not prioritise funding for emerging dual-use tech, there's a risk here for the transatlantic relationship that in its competition with China, the US may leave the Europeans behind, which could make it harder for American and European troops to work together, and which could, um, as a consequence, weaken NATO. And then I want to um, just highlight uh, maybe three of the recommendations that we of the many recommendations that we make in the brief. Um, one is for the EU and for European governments to invest in their abilities to secure and stabilize their own neighborhood, which is becoming more lawless, more contested with the withdrawal of the US as a security provider, with Russia and Turkey moving in to fill the gaps and with China laying the groundwork potentially for its own influence here. And we warn that European defense still lacks a clear sense of direction. It still lacks sufficient financial means the political will to act and also appropriate decision-making structures that would make it possible for Europeans to act together and to act in time. Um, we say that while it might be unlikely for Europeans to get involved in military operations in the Indo-Pacific, they should work with partner countries there like Australia, Japan, Singapore, South Korea on intelligence sharing and on joint planning. And we argue that the EU should, um, on the one hand, encourage and incentivize investment in dual use and emerging technologies and invest in network security and data protection to protect the research that is done at European universities and industry. and Finally, for NATO and military planners uh, in general to become more involved in the screening for security implications of Chinese investments uh, in Europe and also screen uh, European exports of technology that might be used by China for military and security uh, purposes and potentially put export blocks on these technologies too. Um, so much uh, from me on the sort of defense and security side. And I wanted to now uh, pass the microphone over to Ian, who uh, led our research on this policy brief. And 
really just ask the broad question about how Europe should approach the balance between partnership on global issues on the one hand and then competition and economics and rivalry and governance systems on the other hand. So Ian, over to you. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Sophia. My starting point, I suppose, is a point that you made, which is that Europe is not predominantly a military power, uh, but it remains a pretty important economic power. And between them, the, the EU, the US and China make up close to 60% of global GDP. And my starting point for what the EU should do is really that uh, you know you recognize the the importance of that economic relationship between the three and it is a triangular relationship uh, each point of the triangle trades about as much with the other two points um uh it it is um although there are concerns from some about the extent to which china is becoming a crucial supplier of certain technologies and we saw during the covid-19 crisis not just technologies but also for example personal protective equipment and so on the reality is that there's still a lot of mutual dependence and that's quite an important uh, stabilizing factor if we allow it to be in terms of what the eu should be doing concretely the first thing it really needs to do is to become more expert both in terms of China and the US. I mean, it's perhaps more obvious in the case of China. There are some excellent um, experts on China working in Europe, but it's a fairly small pool. And there is always a risk that policy making is based on too little analysis. So I, I would like to see Europe in the um, funding that it provides for research, also putting some money into more academic research into into China. Um, but it also needs to take a closer look at the US. There's an assumption on the part of many Europeans, especially European politicians, that they understand the US perfectly. Um, and history suggests that that's not the case. So we need to to invest more in understanding who our partners are and what makes them tick. I think we do need to accept China's economic rise as a fact. Uh, this is something that perhaps sets Europe apart from at least um, the, the Trumpian approach to, to China, which is to think that if you are tough enough, you can stop China's rise and you can stop China threatening US primacy. I mean, lay, laying aside the question of whether that is a wise policy, I'm not convinced that it is any longer a practical one, given how far China has come in terms of its technical abilities, um, its innovative capacity, the number of Chinese students who have been educated in Western institutions and have ideas of their own about how to innovate and, and move forward. I think we have to accept China's rise. At the same time, it's not unreasonable for Europe and the US to work together to try to ensure that um, norms and standards are observed, whether that's to do with the protection of intellectual property rights or um, state subsidies and so on. 
Um, I think there is there are a set of of norms that we can try and work together to get China to um, uh, to to accept. Um, and I think it's it's very important that Europe tries to set an example of a successful liberal democratic system. Since the global financial crisis began more than a decade ago, it's been relatively easy for China and other authoritarian states to point at the liberal democratic system and to say, this system is not delivering. I I don't think that that is an inevitable consequence of what's happened over the last decade or so. And I think it is time that Europe pushed back showed that the liberal democratic system can work effectively and that the authoritarian model is not uh, a perfect solution to all of the world's problems. But I do think, again, that it's very important that that Europe um, tries to understand better than it does now what makes China tick and what direction China is headed in. But I suppose I'm also interested in the other side of the the picture, which is how China sees Europe, and particularly in the context of the upcoming US election, how China sees Europe as a player in its competition with the United States. And for that, I think I will turn to Jia um, to, to tell us a little more uh, about what the view might be from Beijing and how the other two points of the triangle look from China. Thank you so much, Ian. Um, I think far far from being a love and hate relationship, I think there's a triangle relationship, what I call it, the peaceful coexistence at this best. So to date, that Europe has so shown little interest in involving itself um, in engaging with global power struggle between Beijing and Washington. The majority of European governments have taken a nuanced view on the China challenge. Many have shared the United States' concern over the direction of the Middle Kingdom and the President Xi Jinping, particularly in relation to domestic market access, unfair competition from state-owned and state-backed companies. But these internal divisions over China have long troubled Europeans. And China also felt very confused exactly who are we speaking to? Are we speaking to Germans and French and therefore European Union will be able to make a concrete decision or China will have to go to each individual member states to looking for its, to maximizing its benefit of engaging with individual European members. Now, in recent months, Europe found itself at odds with Beijing a whole wide range of issues. Some of those are already existing complaints for years, and others just emerged out of this COVID-19 pandemic. For example, several European countries under increased pressure from the United States for abandoning Huawei 5G network, as many Western security services would consider that the Chinese states dominate and therefore use the economy in the part to advance its own for its own end. So in this reading, should Beijing wish to wage a political espionage, Huawei would be likely to be the most convenient and highly effective vessel to do so. So all this, including also the ongoing controversies over Chinese direct investment to Europe and Beijing's relentless promotion on its Belt and Road Initiative, and obviously adding more uncertainty on the Sino-European relationships, and given the hindsight of the upcoming US election, and the last thing 
China would like to see is that sense of revitalized transatlantic partnership to form a formidable alliances against Beijing. So I think really Beijing doesn't want to see a scenario that is China vis-a-vis the West. Um, so despite all of these controversies between China, Europe and United States, and I think what Beijing wanted from Europe are three things. And these three things have not changed um, irrespective of COVID or not. So firstly, European single market remains as extremely attractive to the Chinese companies and the government. And in the eyes of many investors, the EU represents a secure home for their investments, in particular a preferred partner for China's ever-growing appetite for overseas acquisition. Although both political and business Europe have already begun to treat the Chinese investment with utmost caution, and so as to Beijing, and you might have seen a significant number of volumes in terms of declining in terms of the Chinese direct investment in Europe. And that's partially to change the rule of the capital flows out of Beijing. So we're expecting more economic announcement from Beijing somehow to curb its direct investment to the European Union. Now, secondly, Beijing also won't find itself fighting an economic slowdown and protracted a protracted war with the United States. I mean, I don't use the word protracted lightly in here because a protracted war referring back to back to 1930s when China entered a period of longer-term fight with the Japanese. But now Xi Jinping borrowed this term from Mao Zedong basically by saying that China will entering a much longer competition with the United States in years, if not decades, to come. Now, obviously, this put China in the extremely difficult situation, both domestically and externally. So that China is looking to build as many economic partners as possible in order to combating its economic fragile recovery. And obviously, European Union become obvious choice. Now, thirdly, Beijing is also eager to be recognized by the established economies and have high hopes that Europeans would endorse its global ambition. Um, whether Europeans will do or not do, and that is up to Europeans to decide. But things on Belt and Road Initiative and um, is something that surely Beijing would like to see more European countries would sign up. But I'm afraid that would be very much a wishful thinking from um, Beijing's side. Now, given all of this, and all come back to me, is that everything on China's external affairs front are very much dictated by its domestic economic um, situation. Now, currently, what China is trying to do is not trying to present itself how to build up a resilient economic system to facing the challenge of far less accommodating international environment. So what China is trying to do is trying to introduce a, a kind of a different type of economic recovery plan. And that is, um, that is the so-called dual circulations strategy to encourage that export-oriented manufacturers switching gear and refocus back to domestic market for the domestic consumption and also for the domestic production. So that would obviously um, make the Chinese government and also the Chinese companies shift its focus instead of foreign direct investment, what we have experienced in the past 10 years or so, and back to giving more money and more focus back to domestic market. And therefore, you would see more and more Chinese companies compete with European companies on the Chinese domestic market. So I'm expecting to see this whole complaint from EUs on the domestic market access will escalate, and that will frustrate the EU-China relations even further. 
So much like China's relations with all great powers, there's a substantial distance to travel between wishful thinking and the reality. And I think Ian is absolutely right. We need to have some sense of um, realism when it comes to engage with China. Politics is about the art of feasible, capitalizing on Europeans' strength as a global champion of rulemaking while preserving Europeans' unity is perhaps the best way to work with China on common global challenges such as climate change and on development issues. But however, to pursue a principled engagement policy with Beijing and Brussels and European capitals, we have to balance the ideological divisions with realism about how much it can change the Chinese government's outlook and the political choices. For China and for European Union, it is now the vital decision time to think ahead. Thank you very much, Jia. Uh, may, may I ask you perhaps one very quick final question, which is, um, as I say, we have a, a crucial election in the US coming up. Um, but then we also have the choice of the uh, the next German chancellor coming up. And I wondered, you know, in, um, in Beijing, uh, do they care who wins either of those elections? Or is it a matter of indifference as to... Um, which which Western leaders they have to deal with? I think for the Chinese leadership, they are more concerned about upcoming U.S. election. Um, it seems to that U.S.-China relations took over all the foreign policy agendas in Beijing, in the, in the power corridor of Beijing. And now regarding who will be the preferred candidates, I'm afraid, and I think Beijing hasn't really got a clear answer on this, because either candidates will present a very hawkish China policy. And obviously, with Donald Trump, you will see that erratic rhetoric come from Trump's administration, that sense of um, um, suppress China's rise. And then, of course, on, mm. if we have a potential Biden administration, and Biden will play very hard on human rights, on normative issues, very much fight against China. So for Chinese, it's in a very much impossible position to have whoever the preferred US, US candidate, and they just have to wait and see. And so far, I have not seen Xi Jinping come out to make any statement regarding the US presidential election or um, German chancellor election, and largely leave the Chinese foreign ministry and official media to take the fight. So the line of thinking in the Chinese leadership still has not changed, which is they do not interfere what will happen in the other country, but watch very closely. Right. Well. I think it's clear that we will be watching very closely what happens in both Beijing and Washington for many years to come. <laughs> but thanks very much. Thanks very much for, for joining us today. Right. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.